Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I know of a case where someone just wanted to change classes um, because their perpetrator was in their class. And she, was, she went to multiple different people, kept telling, being told that she had to go to different avenues to get help. All she wanted to do was just have a be able to do the course online or just move out of that classroom. And it was just this aggressive uh, questioning of, are you sure this will affect him? Um, those sorts of questions. Behind the lines. Inside the newsroom. From Guardian Australia. This week, The Hunting Ground's being screened on ABC and it will be the first televised broadcast in Australia. Now, this is the 2015 documentary film on sexual assault on college and university campuses in the US and the university's failure to deal with it. This film really blew this issue out of the water. I mean, it's not a new issue. It's been around for decades and students have been protesting and trying to do stuff about it for decades. But this film is what really focused attention and galvanised support and action groups to do something. And it actually changed things. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this week I met with a group of amazing women, including one of the filmmakers, Amy Ziering, to talk about whether this was actually relevant in Australia. And spoiler alert, yep, it definitely is. Hi, I'm Karen Willis. I'm from Rape and Domestic Violence Services Australia. Hi, I'm Alison Henry. I'm the campaign director of the Hunting Ground Australia Project. Hi, I'm Maria Mohammed, student at the University of Sydney. I'm Gabrielle Jackson. I'm the opinion editor for Guardian Australia. I'm Katie Thorburn. I'm co-women's officer along with Imogen Grant at the University of Sydney Student Representative Council. I'm Anna Hush and I'm an ambassador for End Rape on Campus Australia. Hi, I'm Amy Ziering and I'm one of the filmmakers at The Hunting Ground. So Amy, I think I have to start with the most obvious question. Why did you make this film? Why was it important to you? Um, that's a great question. I, I'm not, I have no um, first degree relationship to this issue, so it's not a personal issue for me. Um, but what happened was uh, the director, Kirby Dick, and I were just finished another film called The Invisible War, which broke the story of the sexual assault epidemic in our U.S. military. And when we were simply going around to campuses showing that film, every time we showed the film, students on campuses would come up to us and say, you know, actually, this happened to me right here, right here at Bowdoin, right here at Dartmouth, right here at Berkeley. And there's so many similarities between what you're pointing out going on in the military happened right here on this campus. And then we started getting letters in our inboxes, please make a film. It's so important what's going on on campuses across America. So that took us both by surprise. I mean, I'm a parent, so is he. It's not something that was on our radar, but we started, we felt 
um, compelled to respond um, to the request, and we started doing investigating and found that you know the situation was pretty bad here, and that we felt compelled to make a film on it. Had there been much Had research been much. at the time into the you know what the film uncovered as an epidemic of sexual assault? And no, I mean there have been obviously advocacy groups on the ground for decades working on this issue, um, but. And we caught sort of just the start of a burgeoning student movement, which we actually document and you see in the film. But when we started the film, no, there not only wasn't the um, understanding of these crimes, but there also wasn't sort of the public, public outcry about them that we do now see today, which is really wonderful. I mean, it's absolutely in the last six years, uh, there's been a seismic, undeniable seismic change in America on this issue. I mean, we have a long way to go, but the fact that this is actually something in the public consciousness and, it, and the way that the public is viewing this issue is shifting is huge, huge, has not happened in our lifetimes before. I think that that's one thing that really struck me about the film. Despite, you know, the intensity of the revelations, it actually ends on quite a hopeful note, almost. There were hundreds of colleges and universities under federal investigation at the time. Do you think the film changed anything? Oh, undeniably. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, it's uh, incredibly gratifying to see. Again, we have a long way to go. Again, it wasn't the film alone, but the film combined with the activism of the students, combined with the work of NGOs and advocacy groups, combined with the Obama administration. I mean, we've never had a president come out on this issue, a vice president come out on this issue. I mean, it's it's huge. It's I mean, I'm, I'm so grateful and glad for that. And my only hope is that we're not taking a few steps backwards, you know, now with the the change in regime in Washington and with, you know, um, but overall, I feel like momentum is still moving forward. We just have to stay at it. Like, this is not a feminist issue. This is a public health issue. This is a social issue. And this is a, actually, a, you know, men are overall the perpetrators of these crimes, not women. So, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of, that's still a sad statement. Alison, yes. you are part of the Hunting Ground Australia project, and which brought the documentary to Australia. Why did you feel it was necessary to bring it here? So we had an opportunity to bring the Hunting Ground to Australia as part of the Good Pitch Initiative, which is a philanthropic initiative that brings together uh, filmmakers and philanthropists and uh, people working in particular areas around social justice issues. So we had an opportunity to bring the film to Australia, and we had a look around to see what the situation was in Australia, and a little bit like what Amy is talking about when they were looking around in the States. There'd been um, activism here in Australia amongst student groups and amongst sexual assault services, but it had been quite ad hoc. They hadn't really been able to get traction. Um, and we also knew we didn't actually have data around what exactly the situation was in Australia. So when we started looking at the film, we realised that um, there did appear to be an issue here in Australia and that there, and there was evidence that there was, there was a problem but we didn't know enough about it. So what we saw the opportunity as being was having the film to open up a conversation with Australian universities. And that's exactly what the project's been able to do. We've been able to have screenings across Australia's universities and we've been working with some of the people here around, um, you know, really building a coalition, I suppose, of stakeholders that can all work together um, to try and open up this conversation here in Australia. And, and are you uh, an ambassador for End Rape on Campus Australia, which mm -hmm. I think came out of a group started um, as documented in The Hunting Ground? Um, one in five college women in Australia will be a victim of sexual assault. Do you have any idea if the numbers are as high in Australia? I mean, as Alison said, we don't really have much robust data um, about the exact situation in Australia. But we know anecdotally, like from the work that I've done with 
um, students and survivors on campus, the work that Katie's doing, um, and the work that NRAKE on Campus Australia does with students all around the country, that the rates are really, really high. Um, and we also know that the reporting rates are, are very low. So a, a study at Sydney Uni showed that only 1% of survivors report their experience to the university. So by sort of putting together the number of reports and the reporting rate, um, we know that, yeah, the figures are extremely high, um, whether that's at colleges or just in the general university community. Um, and Katie, one thing that really struck me about the hunting ground was the aggressive victim blaming that took place when people did report sexual assaults. Mm -hmm. As a women's officer at Sydney Uni, do you have any experience of that or can you share any examples of that happening? Yeah, I think the aggressive victim blaming often comes in the form of questions. It's always, um, you know, uh, what all these different questions about what actually happened when a survivor has already asked themselves that question, those questions themselves. Um, there's also just extreme things like I, I know of a case where someone just wanted to change classes um, because their perpetrator was in their class and she was she went to multiple different people kept telling being told that she had to go to different avenues to get help all she wanted to do was just have a be able to do the course online or just move out of that classroom and it was just this aggressive uh, questioning of are you sure this will affect him um, those sorts of questions. Also a big victim blaming question um, often comes from parents or people who are seemingly want, wanting to do the right thing and it's, oh, I just wish you wouldn't drink so much or if only you didn't drink so much then this wouldn't have happened when there is no uh, warning on the side of a, a beer bottle that warning may cause rape because it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, that was something that also came out in The Hunting Ground, wasn't it? There, there was so much talk of how being accused of sexual assault will ruin men's lives. And we see that all the time, but very little about how it affects the women um, who have been sexually assaulted. Mariam, do you have any experience of that in, in Australia with your um, uh, support group? Victim blaming? Well, just the, the onus, the, the, the focus being on men and how their lives are ruined. In your experience, is it easy to access support services? No, there's quite a f few barriers to accessing support services. Obviously, one is access to information. Um, survivors often do not know the services that are available to them. Once they do find out what services are available to them, they have to work through this labyrinth of processes, filling out forms, um, and the services that they access are often not specialized to survivors of sexual assault. So often in different stages of accessing services, they will come across people who will ask questions like that. Had they been drinking? Do they really want to report it? And that comes to the onus of falling on the victim of ruining the reputation of the perpetrator. That is very common in on-campus housing, particularly, where um, different houses or residential colleges or are governed by their own councils or their own bodies. Speaking of support services, I thought I'd ask you, Karen, uh, as someone who provides support services, have you noticed any patterns or anything that you can share about sexual assault in Australia, in Australian universities? Well, we... We wouldn't need a calendar to tell us when O-Week was on because the phone calls tell us when O-Week's occurred. Um, so from O-Week for at least another three or four weeks because people don't necessarily ring straight away, 
it will be over a period of time. But every year during the O week, we absolutely see an increase. The other thing that we also see is women who will ring and say, look, I've been sexually assaulted and that sucks, but I've got an assignment or I've got um, an exam next week. I'm having nightmares. I'm having flashbacks. I can't sleep. I can't think. I don't know what's going on. I'm never going to get through this. You've got to help me get through this exam or assignment um, because otherwise I'm going to get kicked out. I'll fail. Um, and then I'll worry about the sexual assault afterwards. The other call that's a really common one is, say, the average 35-year-old, and one of their goals might be something along the lines of, I was at TAFE or university when it happened, and because of what happened, I couldn't go back and I dropped out. What I want to do is get back to university and pick up and finish that course that I was doing. I was doing really well, and since then, I haven't even had a job. So this idea that somehow... It has this shocking impact on the offender. <laughs> Give me a break. Um, one positive thing that I think has, has come to Australia is the Human Rights Commission's investigation into sexual assault. Alison, I think you're involved in that somehow. Was so, it your advocacy that led to that? So the Hunting Ground Australia project, that was one of our four key elements in, as part of the project, was to actually establish some baseline data around what the situation was here in Australia because we just didn't have the real, really specific data for what was going on at Australian universities. As part of the Hunting Ground Australia project, we had philanthropic resources that we could put towards um, a survey. So we actually provided seed funding to the Human Rights Commission for that survey. Um, subsequently, that was expanded to all 39 universities um, with the assistance of Universities Australia putting in some funding as well. Um, and that's now had, you know, tens of thousands of students have been involved in the online survey. They also had a submission process at the Commission. We know from media reporting that there was an immediate impact. When they announced the submissions process, the Commission was flooded. This was a really significant number. And from what we've heard um, from some of the reporting from the Commission, um, they're all pretty harrowing stories. You know, so you know, that we now, and this report will come out in August, we'll have a sense, I think, in August of exactly what the situation is in Australia and certainly a much clearer sense than what we've had up until now. Um, so we're looking forward to those, those results. Um, Anna... Enderape on Campus Australia did a submission to the Human Rights Commission, but it hasn't all been smooth sailing, has it? I think that you had some difficulties with um, the survey initially and, and had some trouble actually with the hunting ground being screened um, at universities. Do you want to talk us through the, what happened? Sure. So in terms of the um, survey process, so I was working as a student representative at the time that the survey was run um, and also working with AROC. And we had a number of problems in that students were coming to us um, especially when the submissions form was opened, saying, look, I'm not sure if my experience counts. I'm not sure, like, it, it might have happened off campus. Um, they might not be a student anymore. It might have happened before they went to university, but the perpetrator was a student. Uh, so it really wasn't clear in the submissions form which kind of experiences it was uh, aimed at capturing because it wasn't quite specific enough. The other problem with the survey was that it didn't use behavioural questions to ask students about sexual assault. So we know from research that the best way to capture the, um, an accurate number of uh, how much sexual assault is occurring within a community is to ask specific behavioural questions about the kind of acts that constitute sexual assault. Whereas if you just ask someone, have you been sexually assaulted, they're much more likely to say no because they don't recognise that their experiences fall into that category. So um, what kind of questions? Can you tell me what should be asked? So just providing really specific and clear definitions. So, right. you know, any kind of penetrative sexual acts without consent, for example, um, have you, you know, if you're intoxicated, you can't give consent. 
um, if you're unconscious, you can't give consent. And once you start asking people those specific questions, they're able to sort of recognise that what happened to them might constitute sexual assault. So for that reason, I think it's important to take the figures that come out with a grain of salt because they're likely to be actually a bit lower than the actual incidence of sexual assault that's occurring. Another issue with the survey as well that I found with um, uh, liaising with other students is that um, you couldn't stop and start the submission. And so I heard a lot of reports where people sat down to write out their story and then they just were, this is too much, I can't handle this, walked away from it. And because they couldn't pause it and then come back to the submission, they then walked away entirely. So there definitely will be under-reporting. Am I right in thinking that the Human Rights Commission did address some of the criticisms of the survey, though? Yeah, only after they were raised by advocacy groups and students, though. And I think it just shows a bit of a lack of planning um, in the whole process and con inadequate consultation with students. Um, I think another problem with it is the involvement of Universities Australia. And from the perspective of End Rape on Campus Australia, um, you know, we see that that kind of compromises the integrity of the process. Uh, and why is that? Well, obviously universities have a financial interest mm -hmm. in covering this up, mm -hmm. um, in not letting these statistics get out. And we know now that vice-chancellors were actually directly involved in constructing the survey that went out to students. So it's obviously a conflict of interest for Universities Australia to have that involvement in the survey. So again, I think there were just um, some problems with the, with the design of the whole process. Once again, the hunting ground really clearly documents the universities and colleges in the United States um, you know, being in fierce denial about it and mm. covering up. Is it the same extent in Australia? Absolutely. <laughs> I think there's no question. Um, we, and, we, and we see this across the border. It's, it's not just universities that try to cover up what's going on. Um, we, we certainly live in an incredibly patriarchal society here and there's a high level of misogyny. And the idea that um, we should take notice when women are sexually assaulted and we should actually do something about it is actually in opposition to a whole range of views that control and govern how we do things in this country. And that's been very much focused on within the university environment, that it's more important to protect our boys and protect our universities than worry about these stupid girls that go and get themselves raped. I mean, you know, really they just should, um, you know, lengthen their skirts and stop drinking and stop complaining when the inevitable happens. Those sorts of attitudes, you know, when you say them, you really think they should belong to the, the archaic attitudes of the past. Unfortunately, they mm. don't. We still value the lives and the work and the words and the futures and the careers of men far more than we value women in any shape or form in this society. And while that continues, taking any notice of the terrible impacts of that patriarchal and gender inequity that leads to sexual assault and domestic violence on women is always going to be a challenge and is always going to be met with opposition and domination by the dominant power, which is men. So two issues that the, that the film raises is the fraternities and, and how um, you know, prevalent it is. They talk about this predator-prey relationship that the fraternities are actually proud to have with, with mm. women and the sports, the college sports being such so influential that it stops people being um, treated properly for their perpetration of sexual assault. We don't have either of those things in Australia. Um, does that mean it's not as big an issue? Look, we still have um, university-owned housing and we still have non-university-owned on-campus housing, which have very similar issues. Um, we've seen over 
last many, many years, the cultures in on-campus housing also tends to be similar to that the problems that are faced by fraternities in the U.S. So just because fraternities are not a thing in Australia does not mean that that culture is not prevalent amongst university students. And I think the other thing to point out is um, in America, the, the motivation for brand reputation and brand protection for the universities is around alumni um, and around big sports and around fraternities. That's clearly shown in the, in the hunting ground. In Australia, I think it's a different dynamic. I think there's still that same motivation to protect the brand, but it comes from the fact that Australian universities are a huge export market. They're one of our largest export markets in our economy. Um, we have an enormous number of international students um, and universities here are desperate to not have that reputation um, undermined. So even though it's a different mechanism, it's the same motivation to try and actually make sure that um, universities are seen to be proactive and acting and, you know, getting on with these issues and trying to address these issues. And we've seen some really constructive engagement over the last 18 months, um, notwithstanding the problems we've had. Mm. Um, there's been some constructive engagement over the last 18 months. And I think the test will be now for universities come August when this, the submissions process and the, the survey process um, becomes public and the outcomes from those, those reports come out. The test will be then about how universities cope then and how they respond then. And it also, it's within the colleges, we have um, lack of transparency. And as the Royal Commission into Institutionalised Responses to Child Sexual Abuse has shown us, is if you have bodies where there is no transparency, where there is supposed to be loyalty within the organisation, what happens in-house stays in-house and there's reputational protection is your priority. And then you have the people who run those will be the people who went there. So mm. there, that, that, that there's this... Um, innate control over anything that no one else is allowed to look in, no one else is allowed to comment on. Mm. Every single uh, review, piece of research or anything else that we've done into where sexual assault happens at an institutional level, those are the key elements that you need to have in place, mm. that what happens in-house stays in-house, that lack of transparency, that lack of openness, and we have exactly that in all of our residential colleges. They're not run by the universities, they're run by people who used to go to those um, particular colleges when they're at university. So you get a churning over of the culture and you don't get any external review of that. I think the, the recent case of St Paul's College has been really Classic instrumental example. in proving that. Does someone want to talk about what happened with St Paul's recently? Yeah, sure. Um, so recently it was exposed that there was um, a post on a St Paul's Facebook group that's an internal Facebook group of the 200 people that go to St Paul's. And it was a fresher offering his service of um, offering a, quote, purposeful cock block. Um, if there's a, quote, whale in your bed and you can't get to sleep and want her removed, um, or if you very much a root and boot mentality um, of, like, how to get rid of a woman after you've probably offered very dissatisfying sex. Uh, and so that came out. And then also following that, the uh, warden of St Paul's um, posted publicly from the St Paul's Facebook account um, uh, the concern in the boys' CVs um, being affected by this sort of behaviour uh, rather than looking at how that mentality actually means a really unethical way to treat women, very disrespectful uh, and not, not nice. 
Once again, mm. the reputation of men being more important than the sexual assault of yeah. women. Mm. And look, it's not just residential colleges. Like, they keep saying it's a witch hunt for colleges. It really isn't. It's colleges are protected because they're technically independent of universities, so their culture is more entrenched. But make no mistake, this is not just colleges. Mm. It is off-campus housing, which is not owned by the university. It is on-campus housing that is owned by the university. A couple of years ago at University of Sydney, their RA was accused um, of, the of RA such, was uh, residential advisor, advisor right. was, um, was accused of sexual assault. It, it's not just colleges. This was outside of college. Mm -hmm. and, and in colleges, this culture is more entrenched, but it exists on the grassroots level across the university. And I think also when we talk about transparency and accountability, we have to note that universities as a whole are not particularly accountable to this problem. Mm. Um, I think a big difference between the states and Australia is that the states actually has really strong federal legislation to hold universities to account when they fail to act on reports of sexual misconduct. Um, Title IX and the Caleri Act we see in the film, students can actually use those to hold their universities to account and universities face really large fines if they don't comply. Whereas in Australia, we don't really have those kind of legislative mechanisms um, to hold universities accountable. So I think in many ways, Australia is actually far, far behind the United States in dealing with this. And I think mm. in that there's a real opportunity in the next few months, particularly with the, the, um, the report coming out in August. Um, Australian government, the Australian government and Australian taxpayers pay subsidise Australia's higher education system to a very large extent, mm. much more than what happens in the States. And I think that um, the governments have been pretty quiet, actually. Mm -hmm. um, we've had a couple, of, a couple of mentions from some of the state governments who are starting to get concerned about residential colleges because they're largely regulated and legislated under state legislation. But the federal government's been pretty quiet on this. And I think mm. um, what, we're, what we'll be seeing in the next few months is, is increasing calls for the federal government to take a bit more notice and step up um, and start looking at how they can actually become part of this conversation uh, because they pay a lot of money and Australian taxpayers pay a lot of money. Um, towards the higher education of, of all of our students. Mm. And um, this is an area where we need a lot more accountability. Mm. And this is really an educational inequality issue. If you have all these survivors who are trying to complete their degrees afterwards or are experiencing sexual assault and then are not getting the support they need so that they complete their degrees, they're then dropping out. Or in some cases, we know that the university has kicked out a sexual assault survivor um, who was failing subjects, came forward that they had been sexually assaulted and the university kicked her out for two years. And it was what only... What was their reason? Um, that she was failing units and they didn't care that she had been sexually assaulted and that was the reason because she was dealing with all that trauma. Um, she was able to appeal it and um, was offered back into university but is still struggling. And again, it's there aren't these specialised support services in place. There's also, if there are any support services, services people don't know where to go to access mm. them. They're not readily available, readily... Uh, advertising. This is about the universities trying to cover this up. If they don't get any reports of this happening, they can say it's not happening. Mm. And it is an educational inequality issue where we're then seeing people aren't able to finish their degrees. And when this is predominantly women, and then the second group is also queer students who mm -hmm. are being sexually assaulted, um, I really think it feeds into the gender pay gap. If you're not able to complete your degree, you're then go or you're finishing your degree much later, you're then behind in your in your life. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. And I think there's also you know queer students, and I think women of colour are also particularly vulnerable. Um, Mariam, do you want to talk about this and their unique experiences as being survivors of sexual assault? Yeah, absolutely. So um, with women of colour and international students, those problems are compounded. There's lack of access to information, lack of access to services, 
There's all of the problems that everyone faces. And then there's international students who are often coming from places where sexual assault is a taboo topic, where sex is a taboo topic. They have not received sex ed 101, not, not, not just what is, they haven't even received education about what is sex, let alone what is healthy sex, what is consent. Sometimes they come from places where you get penalized for adultery if you choose to report a sexual assault and you get punished for it. So it, it really compounds the impacts of those already existing structural problems for international students and women of color. Women of color who are Australians will often come from communities where these things are not talked about, where there is a high emphasis on a woman's honor and the woman being the placeholder of the family's honor. In, in those cases, women will often not talk about it at all. They won't even talk about sex, let alone non-consensual sex. There is high value placed on a young 18-year-old non-married Muslim woman being a virgin. So those problems are compounded by the cultures that these women are coming from, from the places that women are coming from. Um, and that's why I think it's universities particularly are an important target for consent education. These are the people who will go on to hold positions of power, perhaps. It is important for both parties, perpetrators and survivors, to know what is okay and what is not, what is consent, what is healthy sex. It is important for potential perpetrators to, to know what is consent because they're often coming from places where these things are never discussed. They're coming from cultures where rape and victim blaming is glamorized in, in pop culture. Same for survivors. They often do not realize that they have rights. A woman coming from a place where she may be penalized for reporting rape because she's committed adultery will not realize that in Australia she has a right. She can report rape or any sexual assault or indecent assault. She has a right to protect her body. So it, I think universities particularly are important because they need to start this conversation because these are young adults and it, it will have a long-term impact of changing people's mentalities towards the safety of humans. I think that's another the problem, isn't it? It's not just a university problem, it's a societal problem. Yeah. So how do we, how do we what, you know, what role do universities have in changing that? Well, universities are actually producing the leaders of the future, so they have a massive role in ensuring not only of the, pe the people that leave the universities are well-educated and well-skilled in their particular area of endeavour, but they're also ethical people who are going to be ethical leaders and behave as ethical humans in our society. What we do know um, from the Our Watch work in Australia is that gender inequity is the number one cause for sexual assault and domestic violence. And so universities are a classic place where we can start to redress that, have those conversations, talk about how we as individuals within our families, within our community and within our society, we can change those gender inequity um, paradigms and start to move towards a more general uh, gender neutral society. Overlay that with it exactly what Marion was talking about, about talking about ethical consent, about talking about ethical practices. Now, those practices are critical 
to our to our intimate partner engagements, absolutely. And that doesn't matter whether you choose to have 10 intimate partners a night or only the person that you marry. The point is that regardless of when or who or how you have sex, that you do it ethically and with consent. But the concepts of ethical consent can also be used in a whole range of other things within your life. Once you have an ethical framework that you abide by, you can behave ethically in a whole range of different ways. Um, so I think the universities have an absolute responsibility not just to educate people for the particular um, skills of the career path they're going in, but to actually educate our young people to be the leaders of tomorrow that we want. And surely one of those is to be ethical in their sexual engagements. I think it's really critical to, to really realise that there's 1.3 million students at Australian universities at the moment. That's a huge number of people. So if, if universities can lead the way on this, then that, has a, a, that can have a huge potential impact on our future society. Am I right to believe that their response has been, you know, we'll put up more lighting, for example? <laughs> yes, yeah. completely. Uh, Gosh, yeah. floodlights. If only we could have floodlights <laughs> and then, you know, we wouldn't have a job anymore and wouldn't um, that be a marvellous day? Yeah. Floodlights will fix it. If everything. only rapists were vampires. So I think it's similar here as well that most of these sexual assaults happen from people that you know yeah. rather than yeah. strangers. Yeah, yeah. there's um, you know, there's a lot of rape myths that feed into the silencing of of victims, um, and it is usually someone you know. So it's often maybe perhaps you're involved in a club or society at the university, or you met someone really nice in your tutorial. Go to the bar, have a drink, you know, maybe you're at a party, and then you know you go home, and and then it's like, oh no, actually I don't want to have sex, but that person is coercive or you know, all those sorts of things. Um, or you may have even been planning to have consensual sex. And that's and okay. Change yeah. your mind. But mm. change your mind. Well, you might not have even changed your mind. They might have taken that consent away and just dominated and controlled yeah. and yeah. moved. And yes. Yeah. Yeah, so. And there's a huge problem. We need to see this as a university issue because one, the university is not being responsible by offering preventative um, measures such as behavioural consent education, a sex and ethics workshop, which is ready to be brawled out. Karen Willis and um, Maura Komodi um, has, have an excellent program that is a three-hour um, workshop that can be given to the 1.3 million students and that's going part of the way to fix the problem. If they're actually committed to doing something on this issue, they could do it in a heartbeat. They mm -hmm. just need to go, yep, done, bang, we're going to put Maura and Karen's um, workshop to... Um, in in place, um, but instead they want to waste our time with with meetings and so and why down. why don't they want to do it? I think there's been a reluctance. I think there's been a few things. There's been a reluctance to acknowledge that it's a problem. So when we first started doing campus screenings 18 months ago of the hunting ground, um, we had lots of people in our audiences from staff in particular who were sort of saying, "This is an American film. It doesn't it, it's not relevant here." Mm. Um, interestingly enough, other people in the audience would always correct them and say, "If you think this isn't happening here, you're kidding yourself." So that was a really interesting dynamic that would happen in a lot of those screenings. I think that was the first issue. The second issue was because we didn't have data. I think universities mm. have, have lived behind some sort of false um, curtain of, oh, we don't really know what's happening here. Um, we don't have the data to prove what's happening here. In a couple of months, they don't have that cover. Mm. In a couple of months, we will have data that will demonstrate what the, the extent of the issue is in Australia. And I think, again, it'll be really interesting to see what universities do at that point. They've put in some measures in place. There are colleges and, and universities that are starting to roll out some of the training, but it's nothing like what needs to happen. Like mm -hmm. at the moment, it's still very ad hoc responses. 
And I think once we get to August and the release of the Commission's report, it's going to be really interesting then at that point to see how universities respond because then I don't think they can say this isn't a problem. I think also though in the lead up to the launch of the report, there's actually a lot of planning to be done and there's a lot that universities can be doing right now to prepare for the impact that that's going to have on students and on educational communities. So we know that whenever these kind of reports come out or research is released, there's higher media coverage and it's really got the potential to re-traumatise people who've had that experience at universities, whether they're you know, current students, former students, staff, anyone kind of within that community. Um, and we also know that there are really inadequate counselling services in place at universities. So whether they're understaffed, students have to wait weeks for an appointment, um, or the staff just don't have specialist trauma training, um, because trauma is a very specific type of problem that needs very specific responses. And a lot of universities just don't have that specialisation. And the community services are incredibly underfunded as well. Um, so I think universities have a big responsibility in the lead up to the launch to make sure that those uh, services are in place. And also to make sure that, you know, people like Katie, women's officers, student representatives will also receive a really spike in the, a, a spike in the number of disclosures they receive. Mm. Um, I know I did last year when the survey was, was being done. I got so many more students messaging me, coming up to me, telling me their stories, looking for somewhere to go. Um, so NRAPE on campus is calling on universities to put some planning in place, um, impact planning for the release of the report, which includes things like making sure you've got um, more shifts for counsellors, making sure they're trained in trauma specialist counselling and providing um, support and training for student reps in um, how to respond to disclosures of sexual assault and also how to manage their own vicarious trauma that comes from those disclosures. Another really excellent call has been for an 1800 um, counselling service, which would be university specific run by rape and domestic violence services, so that survivors of all ages um, uh, and stages of their university um, are able to call that line and get help immediately. And yet today we have in the Australian Matthew Lesh from the IPA uh, writing an op-ed criticising the hunting ground, which is being aired on the ABC this Wednesday evening. Um, Amy, it, it, he actually says the creators of the film, The Hunting Ground, themselves admitted that its purpose is propaganda, not truth. Uh, what, what, what's your response to that? I suggest people watch the film. I'm just exhausted, honestly. I mean, you're seeing an exhausted response. It's like, I have no dog in this race. I have no reason to make up things. I have, you know, this is an epidemic. It's happening at these, you know, crazy levels. It actually doesn't have to happen. Um, it's a horrific crime. And why isn't our attention focused on, oh my God, this is a horrific crime. Let's, you know, try and figure it out and do better. Because this, unlike most crimes, actually, there's a solution to this. Why do we call it the hunting ground? Yes, rape's a problem in all sorts of culture, in, throughout our culture, but actually it happens at higher rates at certain institutions. In Australia and in America, it happens at higher rates on university campuses. And why is that? Because it's a target-rich environment, because there's ample opportunity, and because there's poor mechanisms in place to investigate and adjudicate these crimes. It's just a small percentage of men that commit these crimes. Most men are not rapists. But if they're embedded in these institutions and they're repeat offenders, you get these epidemic numbers because they can commit these crimes over and over and over again with impunity. That's not propaganda. That's fact. We can turn a blind eye. We can want to not believe it, but it's true. And, and you're seeing the toll it takes on our society. And it's time for it to stop. There's been a white noise campaign since this film came out 
trying to discredit it with various ridiculous, you know, criticisms. Um, this The film played on CNN. It's been vetted thoroughly. Um, I've won several Emmys in investigative journalism by my peers in the media, <laughs> in, the, in, in, the, in the journalist world. I've won journalism Emmys for, you know, integrity and reporting and responsibility. I don't fabricate things. I you know, it's completely thoroughly vetted and backed and statistically accurate. I welcome people to watch the film and make their own opinion. And I want to double down and reiterate again, it's just a small percentage of men that commit these crimes. At least in America, it's most like, it's most often privileged white men that commit these crimes. And that's a population where you're going to see they're, they're just going to be blowback. They don't want any limitations of their un, unbridled access to women's bodies and their ability to do whatever they want with impunity to them. And that's part of the rape culture we live in and the misogyny and the patriarchal culture that and patriarchal imperialist capitalist culture we're in. And that's the reality. So if you care about your sons and daughters, watch this movie. Don't read the front papers. And they seem to be arguing that the film's uh, problem is that it doesn't give the perpetrator side. Oh, I want well, to I be able to... Be perfect. I, I, I think that's a great idea. I have a few more things to say. A, we actually did, and you can look in many other articles... Most perpetrators obviously didn't speak with us. Obviously, if you're going to go on CNN, if you're going to go on public television, if I'm going to keep the mortgage to my house, we obviously, as journalists, reached out to all the perpetrators. They declined to speak. Okay, so that's done. At B, we do have a perpetrator in our film. So I don't know if the person watched the film, but there is a perpetrator we did get on camera to speak in our film. So that voice is well rep represented. And actually, he talks about how easy it is to prey on victims on campuses. So there you have the voice of the perpetrator reaffirming the thesis of the film. And believe me, you know, he was a free, you know, he chose to speak with us voluntarily and didn't have to say those words exactly. So I mean, it's just ridiculous. And it's sad to me that we're even taking airspace talking about this. You know, that, that's why you sort of saw my exasperated, exhausted. I mean, we've opened in these states years ago, so just to hear this all rehash is just sad. It's just sad. Just watch the film. I mean, you know, and, and, and hear the voices of the women and male victims and, and make up your own mind. Well, very well put. I wanted to amplify the, um, the, the, the question you made about whether um, women of color, and I want to just say that actually in the States, women of color are, dis as, are disproportionately targeted for these assaults. And that's super important for people to know. And I know that when watching the film, um, it's mostly uh, predominantly white women that are depicted in the film. Uh, you know, there are other women of color. And I want to point out that that is not because it is not a, a crime that disproportionately afflicts women of color. It's because that the only people felt empowered to speak on camera and show their faces, for the most part, were white women. So the film itself is a reflection. It's a symptom of of, of our culture and of, of how brutally it silences women of color. I just want to make sure I underline that. And I also want to underline talking about racism. Unfortunately, that the only perpetrator we were able to name was Jameis Winston. He is an African-American man. And that was for all sorts of legal vetting reasons that he ended up being the one person who was the archetype of a, of a sports hero figure who commits these crimes. But most men who commit these crimes on American campuses are white, and I don't want the film in any way to contribute to any mythologies about men of color committing these crimes in a disproportionate, you know, it, uh, more than white men. So I just want to sort of raise that issue. Two other things. One is 
you were talking about alcohol earlier. What I love to say about that is alcohol doesn't rape people, rapists do. And part of a rape myth is that alcohol is to blame or alcohol is a problem. It's absolutely not. Um, alcohol, as we've seen in studies over and over again in the States, which I believe will hold true in Australia as well, alcohol is cal calculatedly deployed in these crimes. These are savvy perpetrators. That's why we call it the hunting ground. These are premeditated, targeted crimes, and they use alcohol as a weapon to incapacitate and debilitate their victims and embolden their, their own actions. And never have I ever once seen a person who committed these crimes be as inebriated as the person that they were committing the crime on. So it has nothing to do with alcohol. That's a rape myth. If you took alcohol, you know, out of the equation, you would still have these violent crimes being committed at these rate at, at these rates. So it's just part of the sort of victim blaming strategy. So I wanted to say that. I also wanted to say, hugely important, 92 to 98 percent of the time, when a, a woman reports a rape, she's telling the truth which is statistically consistent with every other felony in our society. Yet this is the only felony that when someone reports it, people say, hmm, what were you wearing? I'm not really sure. Did you mean to give him the television set? Um, are you sure? Were you drunk when the television set disappeared from your apartment? But there's as, it would be as absurd to ask those questions or be quizzical about this crime as it would to be any other. And that's super important because, again, it's this rape myth that, oh, it's he said, she said, we just don't know. You know, it's one of those murky things. No, actually, testimony is evidence. You know, and unfortunately, with this crime, the only evidence you have is the testimony. But it is so, so rare. It's only 2 to 6% of the time that someone's lying about this, just like 2 to 6% of the time they'd be lying about any other crime. So I just want to sort of get that really, and that's kind of the reframing we're really working on here in the States and the re-understanding of this crime. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, you know, basically as this uh, another woman so eloquently pointed out early on the panel, because of ingrained misogyny, for because of ingrained just disbelief and discrediting of women's, women's voices, women's feelings, um, women's histories. I mean, that is why for we don't have people sort of taking this crime as seriously as they should be and not taking the measures they need to to change it. And so then the other thing I'll say is, speaking of all the measures you've all mentioned, which is victim prevention and, and, and getting more resources to help victims, which is great, why are we not also focusing on actually um, prosecuting these perpetrators? You know, if you take them out, game over. So Amy spoke about women of color being underrepresented in terms of speaking out. And I think that combines with the notion of busting these myths. For example, the myth that it comes from strangers, assault often comes from strangers. Um, and that ties in with consent education because if people are coming from cultures where consent is not spoken of, they do not really understand that assault can come from people you know, because if it is coming from people you know, then it is automatically assumed to be consensual. For example, existing partners or ex-partners or other people that you know, it is assumed that consent is given. And that's why busting those myths is important because it empowers that particular group of women who are overrepresented as victims, but underrepresented in advocacy. Getting to Amy's point about prosecuting these men, I think our conviction rate, I mean, it's different 
in each state. In Australia, it's hard to get a national figure, but it sits around 10%. Slower than that. So, I mean, what yeah. what do we do? What's the first step? The, the, the first, the, it, 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 most, most estimates are around about 1% um, in terms of conviction. The biggest proportion of that is not reporting. And there's three key reasons why people don't report. Um, one is fear of the criminal justice process, and that's fair enough. It is a shocker. Um, another is the uh, relationship with the offender. And as we've all said, it's usually someone the person knows. And often what we hear from um, people from university environments say, look, I'm, it happened. I know it happened. I'm going to have to deal with the impacts. But I'm just going to go and pretend I was the good time girl and it's all okay because at least then I'm not going to be called a slut and a whore and be ridiculed and I'll, be, and I'll get through this. Um, the third um, reason that people don't report is those myths, is the beliefs. You know, well, I was drunk or I did kiss him or I did go back to his room. All of those things might be true, but they don't equal consent, not even close. So the first problem that we have is that non-reporting. And there's really clear and simple and easy things that we can do in each of those three spaces to fix that. Then we get into the criminal justice process where it is that thing like no other crime where it's actually the um, complainant who is on trial, where the complainant's reputation, where her veracity, where the, her story is what will be tested and turned inside out. New South Wales is actually the only state in Australia where we actually would even consider putting the offender on the stand and asking them questions. In all of the other states, they, all they have to say is, oh, she was up for it, it was fine, mate, no worries. And then it's actually up to her to prove 100% that that wasn't the case. So we actually have a massive um, imbalance and injustice within our criminal justice process. Again, um, specialist courts which have different laws in relation to sexual assault because sexual assault is a different crime to any other crime. Mm -hmm. So it deserves different laws that recognise trauma, that recognise all the things that we've been talking about today so that we can actually increase that conviction rate and within that absolutely reduce the behaviours of some defence lawyers whose sole role is to undermine, humiliate and destroy the complainant to the point where she can no longer give evidence. Mm. So there are a whole range of things that we can do that have been recorded, researched, information is there. It is about our society as a whole having the conviction that this is what we need to do. And what we would end up with is a whole stack of people um, who are offenders in jail, a whole lot more than what we've got at the moment. The other thing that I would really encourage is anyone out there who has experienced sexual assault in a university campus, think about a, a, a civil action. Because the universities are aware and have been aware for a very long time about what's going on. They've refused to take any, any notice or any actions. They've refused to put a whole range of what would be fairly easy and simple processes in place to change culture and practices to reduce violence. And if someone has experienced sexual assault, when the universities are aware and took no action, the universities are as liable as hell. So get yourself a, 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 um, a, a civil action lawyer 
and Sue. And my guess is that will be when we'll get mm, changed because mm. it's really funny. You hit the hip pocket nerve and yeah. all of a sudden everyone becomes a convert. Well, Annie, well if that's what yeah. it takes, let's get on with it. I think then the, the <laughs> you know protagonist in The Hunting Ground, Annie and Andrea, will be uh, great role models in that case. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to uh, The Hunting Ground Australia Project. I think they've done a phenomenal job. I think the country owes them a debt of gratitude. So I just really want to encourage everyone to watch the film. And I want to, again, thank you all for, you know, your time, your hard work and your and your your, your caring and your compassion. And and I also want to end on a happy note. I mean, this is something with all of us caring about. We, we can make a difference. So so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The other thing I want to say is that, you know, I know most socialists feel overwhelming. Like, what can I do? I don't know how. Do I write a letter? What do I do? This one's easy. Everybody listening, everybody watching. The one thing all of us can do, and it would be a game changer, is believe survivors. If someone ever tells you this happened to them, square one, believe them, and you will change the universe, right? Because what will happen is, A, they'll feel supported, they'll get through this much quicker and faster, you know, by be, by being believed, A, so just in terms of their healing, you've helped them, and B, if everybody starts believing survivors and taking this seriously, it'll change the way we view these crimes, and it'll change the way we investigate them and take them seriously. So just square one, good news, all you have to, you know, please, from here on out, Think of this issue differently and believe someone if they ever tell you they've been a victim of this crime. The other thing that I'd add that's a really simple thing to do as well as all the dads out there who are about to send their sons off to universities, sit down with them and watch this film and have a discussion with your sons. What we do know, as Amy and others have said, is that overwhelmingly men are ethical in their relationships with women. It's only a small group that aren't. But what we do know is that culture of the small group is, has become the dominant culture. It's the ethical men who can be part of, along with women, changing those cultures within universities. So if ethical dads out there, and there's lots of them, talk to their sons about being ethical in their relationships with the women at universities, look at the hunting ground, discuss the issues, talk about how they can be ethical bystanders, how they can understand culture and how they can be part of influencing that. What they will be doing is armouring their young men to be able to go into that university environment and to actually change that culture in a way that's going to be much more healthy for everybody, not just for women, but for everybody. And that's really important. Mm. Just one last thing. I think a really important um, group of people that need to be thanked for their courage, especially, are the survivors that contributed to the Australian Human Rights Commission report. Mm. Because often it's, it's spoken of, um, you know, how courageous Universities Australia are for doing this. But really the real courageous people are the... Uh, survivors who submitted Absolutely. to that report. It's the survive. It should be called the survivors report, <laughs> not the UA report, not the Australian Human Rights Commission report. It should be called the survivors report. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. The only other thing I just wanted to add was that the Hunting Iron Australia project has put together an action toolkit for everyone who's watching the film. So we've put together some targeted actions that students, parents, alumni, um, university staff, and university administrators. Um, can look at and take action after they watch the film and that toolkit is available on our website. So we'd really encourage people to watch the film and then look up our toolkit. And what's your website? Our toolkit is thehuntinggroundaustralia.com.au. Thanks everyone for such a fascinating and insightful discussion. I think there's no doubt now that uh, we can say that the issue of sexual assault on university campuses is as big an issue in Australia as it is in the US. Thanks for listening to Behind the Lines. If you want to watch The Hunting Ground, it will be on iView after it airs on ABC2 in June. 
If you enjoy the show, please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcasting app. And while you're there, please leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.